Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you again this morning. Uh, the last time I spoke, we were in Joshua chapter 6, and we're going to continue that logical progression through this book. So I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. And we will be reading the entirety of the chapter. It's only 26 verses. Uh, first hour, they made it through. It only takes about five minutes to read through it. But I, I, I think it's critical uh, that we read the entirety of the chapter so we have an understanding of what we're going to be talking about this morning. The sermon title this morning is Plain Church. Growing up as a kid, a lot of us played imaginary things that either we saw happening in real life or we saw on TV. We would play things like uh, grocery shopping. We would play cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. And then where I was from, maybe you did the same thing, but we would also play church. And some of us would get together and uh, some of us would say, okay, well, I'll be the preacher, you be the song director, and the unfortunate kids had to be the congregants. And so sometimes we would not have enough kids to have congregants, and we never really had a Bible, so we would just kind of make things up, trying to remember what we had heard in Sunday school or in big church, and uh, didn't have any praise and worship music, so we would just turn on the radio, what it was on, the country station, the rock and roll station, we would use that as our congregational singing. And after we would play church for a little while, we'd get tired of it, and then we'd go on, and we'd go out, and we'd play other things. And we probably wouldn't come back and play church for another three, four, maybe five months, if that. And unfortunately, today, across our country, actually across the world, there are buildings that are full of people, grown people, playing church, merely playing church. And so the idea of playing church is they're not doing it the way God says it's to be done. They're not doing church biblically. They're just playing church. When you play something, it's imaginary. And unfortunately, there are churches that are playing church. There are individuals within those churches playing church. And this morning, we're going to look at two costly consequences of playing church. One is the cost to the body of believers themselves, what we would call the church, and also a costly consequence to the individuals in those assemblies that are playing church. Let's pray and then we'll get into our text. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we are truly thankful for your word. We're truly thankful, Lord Jesus, that we can come to the house of God and we have the freedom to be able to come and worship you, to sing songs towards you, to your greatness, to your holiness, your righteousness. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cruel cross to save us from the wrath of God. I pray, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, now as we look into the text this morning and as I deliver what you've led on my heart, that you would remove me. I pray, God, you'll speak to me and through me so that, Lord Jesus, the people of God today can hear from you. We ask these sayings in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Joshua, starting with verse 1, chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. 
Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toll up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them, and they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and I coveted them, and I took them. And see... They're now hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. 
So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters, his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Very sobering, very heavy passage of Scripture this morning. And we tend to focus on the very end of that, and rightly so, because we have pity on Achan, and we have even more pity on Achan's family, his wife, his sons, and his daughters. Because they were completely destroyed. In our minds, we may look at it and go like, well, why did God even do that? It was just a little thing. And he confessed it and he turned it back in. What? Is God of the Old Testament the God of wrath and the God of the New Testament the God of grace and mercy? No. God has always been God. God is who he is. The Bible says there's no shadow of turning in God. It says about Jesus that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's just very fortunate for us as believers that we live in this new covenant of grace and mercy that we can ask for forgiveness and repent. As 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. But also in our human minds, we have this tendency... To accommodate sin. To allow it. Because some sins are just little sins, right? And we accommodate those things. We allow for those things. But yet, then we turn around and we blame God for the consequences of our little sins. Adam and Eve in the garden. Cain and Abel. So how did this horrible thing happen? Well, a brief backstory. On where the children of Israel, the assembly or the congregation of Israel, which they were referred to in the Old Testament many times. How did they get here? Well, if you were here the last time that I preached on Joshua chapter 6, Israel had a problem that was humanistically unable to be solved by their wit, by their courage. It was the fortress city of Jericho. God had a plan. God's plan was very specific, very detailed. It wasn't a humanistic plan, but yet the children of Israel's part of that plan was to follow that plan exactly how God had laid it out, through faith and obedience. The outcome that we saw and we read is that the power of God came upon that place, and the walls of this great city came tumbling down. They fell from underneath themselves, and the congregation of Israel, the assembly of the people, were able to go up and conquer this unconquerable city called Jericho. We see at the end of chapter 6 
that the Bible tells us that God elevated Joshua in the eyes of the people of Israel and also in the eyes of all the people, the foreign idolatrous people in Canaan. For now Joshua's name is synonymous with the power of God, Yahweh. And so as we look at this, what can we take from this Old Testament passage that we just read? And what does the Old Testament have to do with us as the church anyway? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says that these things were written for us, for examples. For us to see what not to do, what to do. And so we're going to look at two costly consequences for playing church. One is the, the consequence that happens upon the corporate church. And one is the costly consequence of sin for the individuals. And the first thing we want to look at is the costly consequence that the church faces for just merely playing church. If you look in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, it's a summary statement of the entire chapter. It starts off with that the people of Israel broke faith. And it ends with God's wrath burned against the people of Israel. So what does this have to do with Achan? Wasn't it Achan that did this? Well, as we look, the word devoted things and the word devoted in the, in the Hebrew language can refer to two types of devotion. One, it can be something that's devoted to God for a sacred worship purpose. The other thing is devoted to receive the wrath and destruction from God. Jericho was set apart as a devoted thing to receive God's wrath and destruction. And some of those things within the city, God devoted to destruction. Other things he devoted to himself. And the idea of breaking faith here was an act of infidelity on Israel's part to the covenant that they had made with God Almighty. So what was Israel all about in the Old Testament? Well, we know this, that Israel was God's chosen covenant people. Remember the promise that he gave Abraham? He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants great. Great nations will come out of you. Kings will come out of you. I'm going to give you this land. And then there was the promise made that through your descendants, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we know that that promise was fulfilled in what we celebrate this month, the advent, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. After the children of Israel had been redeemed from Egypt by Moses, they were camped there at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses was on top of the mountain. God spoke to Moses and told him the plan and the mission for the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, it says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord, God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. It's a picture of redemption of the children of Israel out of slavery. And verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom 
of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel's role in the Old Testament was not just to be a conquering force into the land of Canaan, but they were to be a nation of priests. They were to be salt and light to those people around them. How they lived their lives through their covenant with God would bring people to wonder what's different about these people. And people would come to know Yahweh is the only true God. The assembly or the congregation of Israel was not just to play act this. They were to actually live this out in their daily lives. That's why they had all the dietary laws. They had all these stipulations. They were supposed to be totally different from everybody around them in the way they talked and the way they dressed and the way they acted and the way that they held each other accountable. And part of that was to call out sin and to make sure that people were following the commandments of God. As we read through this text, we, we see something that is brought out in regards to Achan and the assembly of Israel. Knowing their mission and their purpose, we could say that the, the congregation or the assembly of Israel failed Achan as much as Achan failed the assembly of Israel. It's the idea of, am I my brother's keeper? It's the idea of what we call in the church, church discipline. See, nobody wants to be disciplined, and nobody wants to discipline somebody else for what they did. Because we say, well, that's, that's not really any of my business. I don't want to get caught up in that. But as believers, we'll see in a minute, we're called to do that very same thing. Israel was called to do that. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 16 through 19, Israel receives a solemn warning in regard to this. Verse 16, it says, You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you, in your assembly, in your congregation, a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Children of Israel, the congregation of Israel, failed somewhere as well as Achan failed somewhere. So how does this apply to us? Because we're not Israel, we're the church. First of all, what is the church? Well, the church is also a called out assembly of believers, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not just knowing that I know who Jesus is, but putting my faith and trust, all my hope, all my eggs in one basket, if you will, that the only way for me to get to heaven is to have a saving faith and knowledge of what Jesus did, that Jesus was God. He came and he lived a perfect life, and he died and suffered to satisfy the wrath of God that previously could not be satisfied yet until Jesus came and he did that for us. That's what a believer is. 
That's what the church is made up of. And when we have two ideas of the church, one is the universal church. The universal church are all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ all around the world, all, every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. Then we have what's called the local church or the local assembly. That's us. People have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and decided that they were going to take time out to not only come and hear God's words preached, but to do church, not just play church. The mission or the purpose of the church is laid out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, the act of redemption for fallen mankind, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation with God Almighty is only one way, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we're familiar with the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Jesus said this before he ascended to heaven. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Part of the church is calling sinners to repentance from outside the church, but also those in the church who need to confess and repent. Part of that is through church discipline. Our church practices church discipline. And sometimes people think, well, that's kind of cultish. But it's a requirement that if we're not going to just merely play church, if we're going to be to do the church, we must do what Jesus said for us to do. We must adhere to the gospel, not the woke culture of the, what's permeating the church today, but what God's word says, the standard of why we gather. Matthew 18 talks to that. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is here, Jesus is not referring if someone just makes you mad, someone doesn't say hi to you or shake your hand. We're talking about sin. We're talking about those things that God detests. Those things as believers we know are not part of the characteristics, not part of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing in regard to Deuteronomy chapter 29. In regards to making sure within the assembly, within our local church, that we're keeping eyes on one another. Because we are our brothers' keepers in that aspect. It says, take care, brothers. This is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Who is he addressing? He says, brothers. 
He's talking to believers. But exhort one another. Part of exhorting is also lifting each other up, but also saying, you know, what you did is wrong. That's a sin. You need to take care of that. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. There are always signs of those within the church who are being deceived by their own heart, who are being deceived by the the desires and the covetousness that comes along with with sin. And it's the responsibility of the church out of love and about obedience to God's word that we deal with that, that we admonish those and bring them back not to look the other way and not say, well, that's I don't want to get involved with that. We don't want to sweep it under the rug or turn a blind eye to it. In regards, going back to Achan and the assembly of Israel, you have to think of all those thousands of people that swarmed up into Jericho that day in that battle. Did anybody not see him do what he did? The text doesn't tell us. Another question. In an assembly that was sold out to God, they had just come off a great victory, and they knew that God did it. And they were praising God probably having a great time of celebration. How in the world did Achan feel comfortable enough to do what he did as a member of the congregation of Israel? What does that say about Achan? What does that say about the people of Israel? In regards to us as the church, when the priority of the church no longer becomes centered on God's word and the gospel. And it allows sin within the congregation to be overlooked because it's just a little thing. The church loses its power to be the salt and light. Jesus said, salt that has lost its useful purposes is thrown on the ground and trodden under the foot of men. You don't light a candle and then put it under a bushel. The church today, because of our allowance to accommodate sin, has lost the power of the New Testament church that we see back in Acts. There are some people who give reasons why they believe so. As I was studying this, I came across an article that I wouldn't say flabbergasted me, but it made me go like, really? This article was written last year, November 9th, 2021, and it, the title of it is The Church Has Lost Its Way. This is a guy who writes for a Baptist publication who is a uh, professor at a, I might say it's closed now, it was a liberal uh, institution. But in this article, he wrote, Why the Church is Losing Its Way. So I'm going to read this to you so you know right off the bat, I do not agree with this at all, and I'm fixing to tell you why he's wrong after I read this. But this is what he wrote, Why the Church is Losing Its Way. It says, but the church that preaches that God is on the side of the poor and wants every single person to flourish is proclaiming good news indeed, a message both relevant today and appealing. Regrettably, however, some parts of the universal church 
seem more interested in the sweet by and by than the gritty here and now. So what he's basically saying is there's people in the universal church, the called out believers that are more interested in getting people to heaven than what's going on earth. And he says that's a bad thing. But I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter your situation now. Your situation now, you may be poor. You may be in a bad place, but your situation is not going to get any better if you are not born again. So the priority of the church is to declare that. And we are to have compassion on people, but our priority is to preach the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that's going to change people's lives for eternity. He says the church is irrelevant now because it's not accepting of the woke culture. Then he says this. He says the church is not Christ-like. Let me read this to you. He says, finally, the church is not Christ-like. This is a radical assertion to make. What can I possibly mean? I'm arguing that the church in its words and actions has departed from the Jesus way. And as I read this, I go like, what is he even talking about here now? He says, what way is that? I'm quoting him. He says, Jesus performed acts of humanitarian aid more than he preached or taught the gospel. I personally don't know what Bible he was reading, but then he says, but much of the church today acts as if the most important part of God's mission in the world for the church is to preach the gospel, then baptize and teach converts instead of taking care of God's little ones. Stuff like that is permeating our churches today. There's people in the pulpit this morning that are playing church. And instead of the mandate of preaching the gospel and to let people know the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, and the gospel is the most important thing that the church can proclaim. It's the most important thing that the church can do. Those other things fall in line. And we are to have compassion on the widows and the orphans. But you take care of a widow or an orphan and don't give them the gospel what does that say about us as a church? What does that say about you as an individual? There's a story that's been used over and over again in, in periodicals and stuff, which I think is invaluable. And it's in regard to why doesn't the church have the power that it used to have? And we know why. is because the church will not adhere to the standard, the Word of God. In this little short story, it says, We preach Christ. It says, there was a small English village that had a tiny church whose stone walls were covered by traditional ivy. Over an ark on the front door was originally described the words, we preach Christ crucified. That's what we do here. Christ crucified is the only way to understand the gospel in its entirety. Because if Christ just came, was not crucified, did not die, did not raise again... There's no reason for us to even be in here. There have been a generation of saintly clergy who did precisely that. They preached Christ crucified. But times changed. The ivy grew, and pretty soon it covered the last word. The inscription now read, We preach Christ. Other clergy came, and they did preach Christ. They preached Christ our example. Christ the humanitarian. Christ the teacher, but not Christ the Savior or the Redeemer. As the years passed, the ivy continued to grow until finally the inscription read, We preach. The generation that came along then 
did just that. They preached economics. They preached book reviews and just about anything else. So what are the consequences to a congregation, to a church, to our church, if we fare to adhere to the biblical mandates of how we're supposed to operate in this world? What we talked about, we lose power. We saw the children of Israel, because they failed to keep their covenant of God, they lost power. They went up against the city of Ai. It was a walled city as well, but nothing compared to Jericho. But what they failed to realize was they needed the same amount of God's power that it took to bring down Jericho to take down Ai. You know, the spies said, oh, it's just a little thing. Because Israel had sinned, they had failed in their covenant responsibility. They were unable to stand to their enemies. And the loss of fellowship with God. God said, I can't stay with y'all if you don't get rid of this stuff. The church today, we're like that. As a congregation, if we're not adhering to God's word, if we're not doing the things that are uncomfortable because God says we need to do it to maintain our integrity so we can have the power of God on our church so we can make a change. We can't stand against the devil. We can't stand against false doctrine. We can't stand against false teaching because nobody knows anything because what's being preached from the pulpit is exactly that, economics. A good book review. The church, and this would be our church if we're not careful, that is weak on sin, it's weak on the word of God, it's weak on the gospel, is weak, it's powerless to stand against our enemy. Now we're going to lastly look at the consequences, the, the drastic, costly consequences of the individual who's just playing church. And we know that this guy is... None other than Achan. But who was Achan? We don't have a full description of everything about him, but we have enough things to piece together who he probably was. One thing that I believe that Achan was a religious man. He was part of the people of God. He was part of the assembly, the congregation of Israel, God's chosen people. And he was from the prestigious tribe, the tribe of Judah. It was prophesied that the scepter would not fall out of the hands of Judah. David comes through that line, and we know that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, comes through that line. He had seen the miracles of God. He had seen the Jordan River just stop and become dry. He saw the walls of Jericho, something impossible, just fall down. He had heard the word of God. Moses was one of the greatest Old Testament preachers ever. If you read through Deuteronomy, there's several passages in there that can be referred to as preaching. He took part of the worship sacrifices. He knew the consequences of sin because I believe he was that second generation that God allowed to come into Canaan land, but he probably buried his, his mom and dad. Perhaps he buried his grandpa and grandma because of their consequences of sin, that first generation who failed to act in belief that God would give them the land. And he saw those things that happened in the way. He saw God feed millions of people with manna and so many quail that it just filled their nostrils, the Scripture says. He was a religious man. He believed in Yahweh. Also, Achan was a family man. We know he had a wife. And Achan was probably a good husband. 
He had sons and daughters, and perhaps he was a really good dad. Perhaps there were times that he made toys for his children. Perhaps he played with his kids. We know he took his family to worship, and he probably even taught them what these sacrifices meant and why we have to do these things. And he took care of his family. He was a man of means. We know he had lots of possessions because, unfortunately, all those went up in flames with him. But we also know, even though he was a religious man, he was a family man, Achan was a deceived man. Achan deceived himself to believe that he would get away with it. Deuteronomy 29, the guy says, Oh, I can walk in the stubbornness of my heart and be okay. This was Achan. Knowing all along that what he was doing was sin because of the mere fact that what did he do? He buried it. He hid it. He tried to hide his sin. Also, Achan was a man, unfortunately, whose heart, even though he was a religious man, even though he was a family man, he believed in God. Unfortunately, Achan's heart had become hardened. His heart was so hardened that he felt no need to repent, to beg for God's mercy, for forgiveness. He actually had almost 24 hours to come clean. If you look at verse 13 through 15 of Joshua chapter 7, it says, Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves. Make things right. His heart had become so hardened that he only cared about himself and his secret sin. He coveted, so he took, not thinking about his family or the consequences. And he placed it in his own tent. And we read, after he got caught, he confessed. Is that really true confession? We don't see anything that he repented but think about this. Picture this in your mind, in you, if you will. It reminds me of, if you've ever read the book or watched the movie, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, the character Gollum. Gollum had a gold ring that was his precious. I can see perhaps at night, Achan, when everybody was asleep, his precious children, his wonderful wife, maybe in the beds around him, he goes and he pulls up that rug and he digs in the dirt with his hands. And every morning he woke up, he'd have dirt in his fingernails that would remind him of what he did. He takes those objects, that Babylonian garment and that silver and that gold, and he's, he's caressing it. Perhaps he's talking to it like Gollum did, and he's calling it, my precious. His secret sin was precious to him. We also know that Achan was a man whose sin destroyed not only him, but those around him. The 36 that died in the battle of Ai, nobody, we're told, died in the bigger battle called Jericho. But the smaller battle, 36 men died. Their blood was on Achan's hand. We know that his livestock, everything that he owned, lock, stock, and barrel, was burned up with him, including his beautiful wife and his sons and his daughters. At the end of the story, we're told that Achan and his family are, are stoned. They're, they're pummeled with stones. Can you imagine the cries this year? Daddy, why is this happening to us? Why? The wife, Achan, why did you do this to us? It was too late for Achan. He had a chance. 
But his heart was so hardened because he coveted that secret sin. Because Achan was playing church. Not doing church. The end of Achan's life also reminds me. We don't know what Achan's last words were or what his last thoughts were. It reminds me also again of the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, when Sam and Frodo are going to destroy the ring. They get to the fires of Mordor, and Frodo covets the ring so much that he decides he's going to keep it, and he puts it on his finger, and him and Sam are fighting, and then Gollum, who's chasing after his precious, bites Frodo's finger off, and he falls back into the fires of Mordor, and he's got the ring in his hand. And the last words of Gollum was, My precious. The challenge from the Word of God this morning to all of us is as a church, as a corporate body of believers, let's not be a church that just plays church. That's easy to do. Let's not, let's not be a congregation that overlooks sin. Let's don't accommodate sin within our body. Let's be a church that will hold each other accountable. A church that's true to the preaching of God's word. No matter how hard it is. No matter how convicting it falls on our hearts. We want to be a church that the power of God is on. That the presence of God is here. So when people walk in, they feel the presence of God. They hear the preaching of God's word. And they become convicted in their soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. And get swept into the kingdom of heaven. We don't want to be a church that when people come in, they leave the same way that they came in. As individual members of this congregation, man, let's not be aching. Don't let your heart get hardened because of your secret sin. Those secret sins that you harbor, that you don't confess, that you don't repent of. Not only will they drag you down, but they'll take everybody else around you with them. You'd hate to hear dad one day, sweetheart, why, why? Or your children say, daddy, why, why? Today, if you hear his voice, confess. If you feel, confess. In a minute, we're going to have communion. And we're going to look at a scripture out of 1 Corinthians that Paul talks about. There's a warning for those who would take this ordinance of the church. You can't hide from God. Every time that you open up, pull that rug back on your secret sin. Every time you open that, that secret trap door where your hidden sin is hidden, God hears the creak. God hears the whooshing of the sound of the rug being pulled back. Jeremiah 23, 24 says this. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? declares the Lord. Do not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord. One thing I want us to be mindful of this morning that the Puritan theologian John Owen said this. He said, be killing sin before sin is killing you. 